Our scripture reading for today is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 31. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. We are going to have our after-service Lenten small groups uh, for the next six weeks. So I'm asking all of you uh, to stick around church on Sundays for an extra hour. So following the service, we'll all have lunch together. And then following the lunch, we'll break up into small groups and we'll have a time of study uh, through this season of Lent. So I'm asking all of you to just uh, make this extra commitment. Uh, we haven't been able to do this for the last several years, and so I know a lot of people have been looking forward to uh, gathering once more. So beginning next week, for the next six uh, Sundays, uh, we're asking all of you to just uh, please stay and uh, join in on the conversations, meet some new people, uh, get a chance to uh, make some friends, hopefully, and to study the Word together, right? Okay. Please pray with me now. Uh, Lord, thank you again for the day that you have made, and we ask once again uh, to open our hearts. Uh, that we might hear the word that you have for us today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So in the, the Gospel of Mark, um, in the first half of chapter 7, which we did not get to, Jesus quarrels with the Pharisees uh, regarding religious traditions and against the dangers of elevating rules and rituals above relationships and the right disposition of the heart. He's been arguing about what it means to be clean and unclean and so on, and his disciples are kind of like, they don't quite get what he's talking about. And so right after that argument, Jesus travels northwest to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Or if I were Juno, I might say something like, Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon because he's tired and hiding what is now modern Lebanon. I might sing that, but I won't. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. It seems like he just wants to get away for a while, away from the crowds, and maybe away from his disciples too. And it's no wonder. He's barely had time to eat. Even his early morning prayers alone have been interrupted by overly eager disciples and by needy crowds. But unfortunately, his fame is so great and such that he cannot remain anonymous. And his vacation, his retreat, is immediately interrupted by an unnamed, uninvited woman who has heard of him 
and has come seeking help for her sick daughter. Now, we've heard this story before. A few weeks ago, Jared came seeking help for his sick daughter, and the vocabulary that Mark uses is identical, that she bowed down before Jesus in the same manner as before. So we might expect Jesus to listen to her, maybe say a few words, maybe make a point to the crowds of the disciples about faith, and then go with her or in some other way heal her. That's what Jesus does. But instead we are a little shocked because we get something quite unexpected. As the desperate mother kept on begging Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter, Jesus not only uncharacteristically refuses to help her, which is in itself shocking, but Jesus insults her, essentially calling her and her daughter dogs. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, to be fair, Jesus can say some harsh things. We know this. He will tell a would-be follower, let the dead bury the dead. He will call Peter Satan. He's called religious leaders hypocrites, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, and evil generation. He's called Herod a fox, which today I know is not an insult. <laughs> we kind of like Jesus insulting the hypocritical Pharisees and the skeptical Sadducees. But this is a mother begging on behalf of her sick child. What is wrong with Jesus? This is the kind of thing that will immediately get you canceled today. It's like one of those tweets or texts or emails that you wish you'd take back. It's one of those sentences that preachers like myself wish that Jesus had never said. In John 6, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So why does Jesus respond in this way? Why is Jesus acting so un-Jesus-like? I can tell you that the church has struggled to interpret this passage and has tried to spin it in such a way as to protect Jesus' reputation. Because in modern terms, Jesus comes across like a callous jerk, or maybe even a bigot using a racist slur. This is not a good look for him. So many scholars have tried to soften Jesus' words. They point out, for example, that the word that he uses for dogs is the diminutive form of the word, so that he meant something like doggies or puppies. Others have suggested that Jesus is being playful, or that he is testing her faith, or that he said it with a smile or a wink, or that he's perhaps just repeating a commonly held local proverb. Still others read the story as only a parable, symbolically as teaching, persistence in prayer, or some other lesson. And still others more recently have suggested that Jesus was just having a bad day. That he was overcome by fatigue and irritability. Or that he simply had the same kind of prejudices of others in his day. Now Mark doesn't tell us why. And we have, of course, no way of knowing the tone in which he said these words or the expressions on his face. But no matter how we slice this, to insinuate that someone is a dog, to equate your beloved daughter with a dog, even if it is a puppy, is still a 
offensive and insulting. And in fact, given the context of Jesus' day, what Jesus says is actually worse than how it might sound to us. Today, dogs are beloved pets, treated like a member of the family. In Jesus' day, dogs were feral scavengers, considered unclean. Jews sometimes called Gentiles dogs. And Rabbi Eliezer is often quoted as saying, he who eats with an idolater is the same as the one who eats with a dog. And in the Bible, you might remember that in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was so insulted that the Israelites would send a puny, untrained boy, David, to fight him instead of a real soldier. Then he said, am I a dog? You come to me with sticks. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul warns the church against those who insist on circumcision, calling them mutilators and dogs. In John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth, in the end, this glorious vision he has of the end of paradise, he says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Dogs belong with all who are outcasts. There is no place for them in paradise. There is one other biblical illusion that we cannot ignore. Remember that Jesus is in the land of Sidon. Sidon happens to be the homeland of Jezebel. She is commonly blamed for the promotion of Baal worship in Israel, the persecution of the worshipers of God, and the plot to assassinate the prophet Elijah. She is notoriously known as the quintessential evil queen. And for her sins, she is eventually defenestrated that she's thrown out of a window, trampled by horses, and her blood is licked up by dogs. So regardless of what form of the word dog Jesus may have used, it would have been maddening and inflammatory. And to be perfectly honest with you this morning, I'm still not certain as to why Jesus chose these words, when he had so many other words available. But I'd like to, for us at least, to consider this one possibility. I don't know how you sort of think about this story, but I think given my own sort of um, cultural blinders and my sort of own social biases, uh, for most of my life when I read this story, or I try to understand it, I have always pictured this woman, this Gentile Syrophoenician woman, as a poor woman. I assume she was like the nameless woman we heard about earlier who had the bleeding uh, complications for 12 years, who had spent all she had on doctors and had been left impoverished. I thought that maybe she was even a widow, a widow like the prophet Elijah helped heal in the town of Zarephath, which also happens to be in the land of Simon. But there is nothing in our text this morning to indicate or to support that assumption. So what if this Syrophoenician woman is not a poor widow, but rather a woman of substance, one who's used to privilege and power? Unlike the woman who approached Jesus from the back, just hoping to touch his garments and kind of disappear into the crowds, 
This is a woman who boldly approaches Jesus face to face. You're not supposed to do that. In our culture, a woman cannot approach a strange man like that. And especially a Gentile woman cannot approach a Jewish man like that. It breaks just about every social protocol of her time. And yet she does. And Mark here seems deliberately to parallel her actions with that of Jerry's. So perhaps he's suggesting that she too is a person of influence and of high social standing in her community. And that's why she's able to do this and get away with it. When we read it that way, then the tenor of the story changes. Now, it's only mildly suggestive, but at the very end of the story, we are told that she went home to find her daughter healed and lying in a bed. As 21st century readers, Western readers, we assume that everyone had a bed. Of course, that's where you would find your daughter. But that's not the case in first century Israel. Most of the poor, that is most everyone, probably only had a mat, not a bed. In other words, what if this woman is among the Sidonian ruling class, those who have been oppressing the Jewish workers in the area? We know that Tyre and Sidon were a major agricultural center dominating the economy of Galilee. And according to first century historian Josephus, the people of Tyre and Sidon were Israel's most bitter enemies. They have a long history of that. And in fact, that Jesus might be saying something along the lines of, first, that the poor people among the Jews, those who are suffering, let them be filled and eat and be satisfied. For it is not good to take the poor people's food and throw it to the rich Gentiles who have been exploiting them. Now, I don't think this necessarily excuses Jesus' words, but at least it's consistent with Jesus typically siding with the poor and the oppressed. With that, let me just make one reflection with you today. In the church calendar, today, the Sunday before the beginning of Lent, before Ash Wednesday, is known as Transfiguration Sunday. And it marks the end of the season of Epiphany and the start of the season of Lent. So that before we enter into the more somber season of Lent, on Transfiguration Sunday, we are given one more glimpse, one final look, a peek into Jesus' glory in the story of the Transfiguration. Now, the reading today obviously is not that. But because of the way the narrative lectionary is set up, there was a choice between these two readings this week. And I chose this one to preach on because the story of the transfiguration we covered, uh, the parallel story in the Gospel of Luke in our uh, FGs. Now, as you know, the story of the transfiguration is very much over the top. Right? Jesus literally glows. Is his clothes become light and white? A voice from heaven, there's a cloud, Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy stuff, right? It's an unforgettable scene revealing Christ's glory, but it's also unlike anything any of us are likely to experience. It's, it's, some, it's, it's a vision you wish you could have, but not something that we can easily relate to. But it occurred to me in our reading today that Jesus is also transfigured. Jesus is transfigured, transformed in this encounter with this woman. 
It's not as dramatic as what happened on the mountain, but it's deeply transformative in the way that we can relate to. Jesus said to the woman, let the children be fed first. Let the children be fed first. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, his sense of mission, his self-understanding, has been to prioritize the work among the Jews. He planted some seeds elsewhere, as we saw, for example, with the man who had been possessed by legion. But Jesus understands his life fundamentally according to the scriptures, and he knows that the fulfillment of God's promises requires him to preach and to heal and to cast out demons among God's people. According to Matthew 15, Jesus says, I was sent only to the last house of Israel. And the first time he sends out his own disciples, he tells them, go only to the house of Israel. Jesus is stating a historical reality. Israel has priority. Salvation is from the Jews. They are God's people. It is through them that God will send his son. Let the children, therefore, be fed first. Now the woman, she accepts this. She does not complain that it's not fair. She does not debate as to why God would choose the Jews instead of the Syrophoenicians or any other people. Instead, she swallows her pride. I mean, imagine what it took for her to swallow her pride in this moment. And she takes Jesus' metaphor, and within that framework, she calls upon him. She challenges him to heal her daughter. Right? This is the love of a mother who will accept being called a dog if it will lead to the healing of her daughter. She will humble herself and call Jesus Lord. In fact, she's the only person in the Gospel of Mark who will call Jesus Lord. Yes, Lord. And even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She accepts Jesus' analogy or points to its implications that when children are fed, even puppies also benefit from the crumbs if only incidentally. She has listened carefully to Jesus because Jesus said, let the children be fed first. Okay, she says, I agree. I agree. Let the children be fed first. But you've already fed your children. I know it's lost in the translation, but Jesus and the woman, they use two different words for children in this exchange. The word that Jesus uses is a word that is usually referring to biological children. And the word that the woman uses for children is a more inclusive word, meaning just children in general. So the woman is saying something to the fact, I know I'm not Jewish. I don't need to be first. I accept that. I accept that others are going to be fed first. But why can I be second? In this she anticipates what the Apostle Paul will write later to the Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. It's a powerful argument that changes the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is transformed. Jesus said, let the children be fed first, or more precisely, let the children be filled first. Filled first. This word is interesting because this verb, filled, only appears three times in Mark's gospel. 
Notably, the first time it appears is in the feeding of the 5,000 in the previous chapter. At the end of that miracle, Mark writes, and they all ate and were satisfied. Satisfied, filled, fed, same word. And then it appears here in this reading. And then the next time, the last time it appears, will be in the next chapter, in the feeding of the 4,000, where Mark will conclude that miracle with the same language. And they ate and were satisfied, or filled, or fed. So here's another sandwich, right? Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, and appropriately after this sandwich, we got bread, we got bread, <laughs> and we got bread comes in between. Not only that, remember how the story of Jairus' daughter was healed? Jesus ended that by saying, give her something to eat. And now this daughter is being given something to eat, even if it's only breadcrumbs. This is not only telemedicine at its finest, but the way the stories are linked tells us that there is enough bread for all. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of the world. There is enough. The daughter is healed because of her mother's words. But even more astonishing is the fact that Jesus is transformed because of her words. Look at what Jesus does after the conversation. Verse 31, you just heard. Mark informs us that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. I know those are all you know, places you may not be familiar with, but if you look this up on the map, you will see that this makes no sense. It's like saying someone went to Philadelphia starting in Brunswick by going to Fort Lee. Why would you do that? My wife will tell you that I have the worst sense of directions, but even I would not do that. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he not go directly home? Why does he go out of his way to the Decapolis, to a network of Greco-Roman Gentile cities, to do ministry? That's why. He will heal a deaf mute in these lands in the next reading, and then he will feed the 4,000 in these Gentile lands in the same way that he fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory. Jesus does this because his understanding of his life and his ministry has been enlarged by this unexpected conversation. The Jews first, yes, and the Gentiles too. Not later, Jesus, but now. Jesus' agenda has been altered by this conversation involving two more daughters. I hope this is an encouragement to you. I suppose there might be at least a couple of you here today who planned out your whole life when you were 15 years old, and it went exactly as you planned. You guys can try to do that now, too, those of you who are at that age. But most of us know who have lived a few years, we know that life and the spiritual life takes unexpected turns and details. Even Jesus was not born with a complete three-year mission plan where he was rigidly pre-programmed to do this miracle here and, and heal that person. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how it's, that's not human. Like all of us, Jesus had to learn. He had to adjust along the way. He had not initially planned to spend this extensive amount of time in these lands, but he did. Because a mother, 
mother out of the love for her daughter, dared to approach him and speak up. And he was open to hearing a word from God through her. He was available to listen and to be taught. Those of you who have been on any sort of mission trip, you know that perhaps the most important quality that you can bring in missionary work is flexibility, right? You go prepared to teach 100 kids and 1,000 show up. What do you do? You can't kick out the 900. You adjust. You trust that God led them to you, and you trust that God will provide you with the resources to meet the needs of the extra 900 that you did not expect. I know that most people go on mission trips expecting you know, to go and help some people, which is great. But maybe as you do that, God wants to help you to expand your vision, to broaden your sense of ministry, and perhaps to do some new thing for you. I think that's what Jesus is learning here. He's transforming the same way that God wants to transform us. We have the same opportunities to transform even on our vacations and sabbaticals through uninvited people, uncomfortable conversations, and unexpected ministry. An experience like the transfiguration on the mountaintop is rare. But the opportunity for deep, genuine transformation may just be one person, one conversation away. It may be that the very people you are trying to avoid and get away from are the very people through whom that God wants to teach you something. It may be that it is through those people who interrupt your sleep those who interrupt your vacation, your work, that it might be through them that God wants to speak. It may be that not the ministry that you are planning to do, but in those times that when you are trying to get away from ministry, that God will speak to you and expand your vision of what might be possible. May you be open to the people in your life so that God might speak a word to you and may you have the humility and the courage to change and expand the path of your own journey and your ministry, especially as we enter now into the season of Lent. Please pray with me. Lord, we do not always understand. But we come to you like this mother. And we ask you for healing. We ask for help. And through this conversation, God, would you change us? Would you transform our hearts? Help us in this season of Lent to be especially be mindful of those people that perhaps we want to ignore or avoid the conversations that we don't want to have. And maybe in some offensive word that we hear, something that offends us, maybe that will give us pause to reconsider and to hear something that you 
would say to us, help us to hear what you would say to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.